You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine fingered host. Dan Johnson. Welcome back, everybody. Hopefully, you have all had a great Christmas and had the opportunity to spend uh, the holidays with your family and uh, got to do whatever it is that you do with your family or friends on the holiday season. Um, so, hopefully, that turned out well for you. I will give you a little bit of an insight into my holiday season. And I had a four-day weekend uh, with work giving me Friday and Monday off. And Sunday and Monday of this week and even into today, uh, which I'm recording this on a Tuesday, I was on my knees knees praying to the porcelain God. I was so sick that, uh, and I know this is probably is one of those too much information type scenarios, but have have you ever puked so hard that your back and your abs feel like you you they got to work out like they're sore from from using them so hard uh that's what i went through and it was not fun so <laughs> merry christmas to me hopefully you guys had a much better christmas and uh like i said got to spend some time with my family now on today's podcast i'm going to call this a bs session it's also a hunter profile podcast but it's kind of mixed in you know, it's, they're both kind of the same, but we're not necessarily talking about bow hunting today because if you can imagine this, my guest today, his name is Matt Goodlife and he is all the way from England and England outlawed bow hunting in 1965. So wrap your head around that. And he, he goes in to discuss a little bit about that when I ask him uh, some, some questions regarding that. But today, Matt basically tells me, shares stories with us about what it means to be a hunter 
over there in the UK. He talks about how he hunts, the weapons he hunts, the species of deer he hunts, uh, so forth and so on. And it's just a really good conversation with someone who hunts, I guess, is a good, is is a hunter but hunts differently than we do in a different country. So I, I felt it would be a great opportunity to kind of share his style and his way with us over here in the States. And uh, yeah, so hopefully you guys enjoy this. It's something a little bit different. And I had a lot of questions for him. It was a great conversation. But before we get into today's podcast, I talked with Matt Klein from Exodus Trail Cameras about when can a trail camera be dangerous to a whitetail hunter's season? Well, that's a great question, Dan. You know, we talk about this a lot, Chad and I do, you know, sitting around as we're, we're trying to come up with new products um, or ways to make our trail cameras better. And the fact that since trail cameras have become uh, as big as they have over the last 10 to 20 years, they're hugely important. They allow us so many things that were not possible before trail cameras became available to us. You know, I talk about it a lot from my personal stances. Trail cameras have allowed me to evolve as a hunter so much faster than I think I would have without them because I'm able to see what's going on and learn so much about the deer that I'm hunting um, when I'm not in the woods. And, and seeing those things have allowed me to, to kind of pick and choose the places and the deer that I want to hunt so much more than I'd be able to if I was just sitting on a log hoping for the best like it was in the old days. But I will say, I think they do get people in trouble in the fact that, you know, a lot of times this day and age, if we're not seeing that big mature buck showing up on camera day after day, we're hesitant to sit in the woods and wait. And and I think there are times when that's kind of come back to haunt me is the fact that, you know, no matter how much intel we're able to get, no matter how much, uh, no matter how much digital scouting we're able to do with these trail cameras um, and all the tools that are available to us these days, there's nothing that, that beats putting time in the woods and learning things that are out there. And I think sometimes we rely a little too much on that data when, you know, sometimes you have to shut that switch off and really go in there and figure things out um, for yourself. If you guys want to find out more information on Exodus Trail Cameras, be sure to visit their website, exodusoutdoorgear.com. And if you guys do decide to purchase one, two, three, 25 of their trail cameras, be sure to use the discount code nine fingers. Take advantage of that. And that will save you $20 on your order. And that is the number nine followed by the word fingers and uh, no spaces. And uh, yeah, that'll save you 20 bucks. Now let's get into today's Hunter Profile podcast with Matt Goodlife all the way from the UK. All right, on the phone with me today, and I must say, this is going to be an exciting podcast, not only for me, but for the rest of you, as we have our first, and I'm not talking about Canada, but our first hunter profile slash BS podcast with someone who lives in a completely different environment than what we are used to uh, over here in the United States. And today on the phone, we have Matt Goodlife all the way from the United Kingdom. How are you doing today, Matt? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Dan. Yourself? Oh, I can't, uh, I can't complain other than right now outside where I live, it is negative 15 degrees, and that's without a wind chill. My word. What's, uh, what's the temperature over there right now? 
Uh, we're probably in about somewhere between 10 and 14, I would think. Okay. That's, uh, and is that centigrade? Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm not even going to try to do the math for Fahrenheit, but, uh, um, <laughs> so let's just, I have so many questions for you today, uh, about how, um, what hunting is like over there. And I think before we get into that is why don't you tell us where you live and what do you do for a living? <clears throat> okay. Uh, well, I live in the County of Essex, which is in uh, Southeast England. Um, my blood is actually from the Southwest of England in a County called Somerset, but uh, due to my parents moving around and everything else, I've sort of ended up here. Um, and uh, it's Essex is part of the uh, East Anglia group of counties, which is Norfolk and Suffolk and Cambridgeshire and uh, and possibly just about Hertfordshire. Um, as far as a, a living goes, I do anything from landscape gardening to fencing, patios, hedge cutting, grass cutting, um, tree planting, probably planted over 50,000 trees myself, oh, nice. that sort of thing. Okay. So I'm a, I was just going to say, also, I, I'm an ex-gamekeeper. I actually went to, to university, and I have a, uh, a national diploma in game deer, wildlife, and fishery management. Okay. So what over there, what does that entail? Uh, the gamekeeping? Yes. Well, the gamekeeping is to produce a, 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 sh a sporting day's shooting of pheasants and partridge. Okay. So if, okay. You, if you think of driven game rather than the sort of walked up with, that you may be more used to, this would be lines of guns lined out and you would beat woods and cover crops towards them to produce, you know, driven birds, pass shooting. Right, right. Okay. So you look after the whole bird, the whole cycle of um, whether you release poults or whether you, uh, you know, rear them yourself from eggs and have the, the hens and cockbirds collect the eggs off of them and rear them all the way through and, and then release them. I mean, we, we release millions of pheasants a year in the UK. Um, and partridge and then uh, you do all the vermin control so you're looking after you know for you're trapping rats and squirrels and stoats and weasels you're then shooting magpies crows um and shooting foxes as well a lot so the whole your whole year is based around looking after pheasants and then producing sporting days for uh, paying guns okay so is there as far as what you just talked about from a bird standpoint is there wildlife where it's it's uh native to the land or are you literally raising them and then letting them go on the properties where these uh, hunters end up hunting them um yes there there are some shoots that are purely wild bird so i mean, I mean pheasant shooting has been going on since you know the english disappeared off somewhere to asia and found the pheasants so right. we've had them for hundreds of years so they are now naturalized okay um to produce, say, a 200, 300 bird day, you're going to have to be releasing six, 7,000 pheasants to produce, say, 10, 10 days of that because you're roughly looking to shoot 50% of what you put out. Um, but these aren't – don't think of them as tame birds. Right. They're, they're released into a, what we call a release pen, which will be posts in the ground to six foot with wire netting all the way around. Mm -hmm. um, there's no top on it. So when they decide to go over, that's that's it. The, the pen's there to initially to help them out when it comes to foxes because, you know, foxes will slaughter them in their hundreds otherwise. 
Um, so, but they are wild birds. Once they once they decide to fly over the top of the pen and they're out, there's no such thing as can hunting or, or you know a high fence here. Okay. So um, once they walk, you know, out of that reuse pen, if they want to go on three farms over, they can walk wherever they like. So they gotcha. are, they become wild birds. Right. I gotcha. Okay. So now other than birds over there, um, our first communication was you sent me some pictures. So tell me a little bit about the, the, the deer species. I know you, you sent me multiple pictures. What are we looking at for different species over there? Right. Um, our true natural um, species of deer for us are red deer and roe deer. Okay. Um, there is um, fossil evidence going back before the last ice age that there was indeed a fallow deer here, but sometime of that period it was wiped out. So we think probably the Romans or the Normans brought fallow to the British Isles. Okay. So they are still classed now as a, a native naturalized because obviously, you know, that was however many 10,000 years ago or whatever. So, um, and then, so there are three, which you would call definitely as a, a native species. And then through um, the Victorians going off around the world and bringing back foreign animals to have in their deer parks and their animal parks, uh, private collections. We now have three Asian species as well that have all been out since the early 1900s. So again, they're very much naturalized and they are Sika, uh, Muntjac and Chinese water deer. Okay. So we have six species. And they're, they're, they were, although they were brought in, they are still free range throughout the, the country. Absolutely. Right? Okay. Yep. All right. So, you know, I'm looking on a map uh, here and I'm just on Google earth and I'm zooming down and it looks to me just based off of first glance that almost every inch of the land is, I guess, developed into some kind of agriculture or farming. Um, is that, is that correct? Or is there a lot of wild lands still in England? Oh no, there's, there's still a lot of, Yes, untouched things like that, but agriculture is very much a, uh, a, a massive industry over here. Um, so uh, yes, very, you know you you are looking at you know lots and lots of agriculture, and that some of it depending on where you are as well is that it will be an arable sense, so it will be for growing crops. Other areas it will be pasture for um, cattle, sheep, etc. Right. Okay. So where I live in in uh, the in Iowa, the central part of the United States, uh, our white-tailed deer eat a lot of crops. Are are the deer that uh, are living on the countryside? What are what kind of food do they eat? Um, the obvious on the natural side would be things like acorns, chestnuts, um, and any other fruit that's going to fall. Then they will browse heavily on bramble and grasses. They will obviously bark strip, um, eat any and any undergrowth that's edible in that sense. But then they obviously do go onto the crops and they will eat the wide range of wheat, barley, um, beans, peas, uh, rape, the whole lot really. Okay. So so they're they're able to live and live without any type of human assistance, right? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Now, what are the 
the numbers like? I mean, are we talking large populations or is it managed fairly well through through hunting? How's that work out? Um, the I wouldn't. I'm not sure I'll be able to give you an actual figures, um, right. but the, the deer population is increasing every year, and the number that are shot are is increasing every year. Um, you know, we it's you know in a technical sense, you, you can't stay on top of them, so to speak. There are that many. Okay. And that goes across all six species as well. Um, The Chinese water deer, for instance, are quite an East Anglian-based area where they are, but they are very much more widespread in each area that they are. So, you know, it's nothing to see, say, 20 Chinese water deer in 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 one field. Okay. Um, So, yeah, they they all have their different habitats and everything else, but um, they are increasing. And to say that the deer stalking and and the number shot is increasing as well now are are they doing damage to crops in some areas yes yes okay so now what what that tells me is there there may not be a lot of hunters over there what is the what is the hunting lifestyle or maybe hunting tradition over there um it's a very deep and rich one, to be honest. Um, um, I'm trying to think how to answer that, really. Um, I mean, the, I guess you 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 go off. Sorry, go on. In in the you know in the United States, we have several different species. Obviously, we have more landmass than you guys, but we have several different mm-hmm. different species: archery. Um, bows you know or we do archery we have rifles and stuff like that um and then your country has also been around thousands of years longer than our country and um from from my understanding that the the number of people over there may not be a part of that hunting lifestyle or maybe as accepting as that hunting lifestyle, and that's just from first impression. Um, is that something that you see over there? Um, I wouldn't say any more so than, than in America. Um, yes, you have the anti-hunting group and lobby, etc., etc. But to be honest with you, they just get laughed at by us over here. No one really takes them seriously. Okay. Okay. Um, so, you know, Peter, for instance, would not have the power that it has with you. Right. And why is that? Um, I think because there are more people who are likely to be sitting on the fence. Right. As, and not having an opinion either side. So as long as you conduct your, yourself in a good manner, they're quite happy to see you fish and shoot. Um, so, you know, they don't get the support, for instance, that, that some people in America do give Peter. Okay. I gotcha. So it's more of a, like you said, it's, it's from an anti-hunting standpoint, they're just kind of laugh. They're laughed at. No one takes them serious. Not too serious. No, not at all. Okay. Uh, it's crazy. I don't know if you, uh, heard about this whole, um, thing with a company called Under Armour. And yes, indeed. the spear hunting, the guy who uh, spear hunted a bear and uh, Under Armour 
was influenced by anti-hunters, which then influenced the Canadian government to change their uh, stance on spear hunting. And I, I believe they made it illegal. Um, if I, if what I've heard is correct now, there's no, is there a big push there to ban certain types of hunting or is like you said, it, it just kind of goes to the wayside because nobody takes those people serious. Um, the, the only instance of that was the fox hunting with hounds. If you think of a, maybe a traditional scene of people on horseback with hounds hunting foxes. That was technically banned by Tony Blair when he was in government. Okay. And and it was nothing to do with the actual, I mean, the evolution of of a hound is that it's a 60 pound dog that is hunting a, say, 20 pound fox at the most. Right. There is only one outcome when that first hound catches up with that fox. Once it, the first bite or two, it's dead. So th- it then becomes a dead carcass that the rest of them then come on, you know, and grab hold of. Um, so the, the antis always said how they were ripping, you know, a, a, a fox to bits while it was alive. Well, to say the first hound killed it, so it was never alive after that. Right. So they always played out on that big thing. Um, but what the actual problem was, it was a class thing. The, the Labour government and that sort of follower didn't like the upper classes of the United Kingdom right. hunting. So that's why it was banned to me. Because at the end of the day, most fox hunts don't probably catch more than two or three foxes a year. Right. They may be out 20 weekends. You know, it's not a successful way to control foxes. Right. If you want to control foxes, you go out with a high-powered rifle and a lamp, a, a, a torch at night okay. and shoot them. That's okay. the easy. I, I, you, know, you can shoot dozens of them like that. So it's uh, so a little bit it was more a class sporting. Um, what with the with the horse and hound? Yes. Uh, I I wouldn't really look at it that way. To me, it's just you know people who enjoy riding horses and uh, jumping over large hedges across the countryside, having a, a bit of fun on a, d- a day out. It's as I say, it's not an effective way to control foxes. So so you know that's the only instance where Labour were in government at the time, Tony Blair, and they managed to ban, so to speak. Now you can still ride out with hounds and chase a fox towards someone, say with a shotgun. Okay. And he can shoot it. If the hounds happen to catch it, well, there's nothing you can do about it because we were driving it to the person with the shotgun. Right. I so people you. still hunt. You, you know, so they never really banned it to start with, but it is technically illegal to hunt with hounds. Okay. So that kind of brings me to two more questions, and that would be, is there public lands for anybody that wants to hunt to hunt there? And the maybe you can elaborate on to is hunting over there kind of only people with money, so to speak, or the wealthy can do it. Right. No, in the way you understand public land, there is zero here. Okay. Um, yes, there is. Every piece of land is privately owned. Now, it may be privately owned by an organization, say, like what's called the Natural Trust, but each of their properties is open to visitors. So if you wish to go and ride your bike or take your dog for a walk in a thousand acre wood, that is open for you to walk in and do that. But there is, you know, you could not just turn up with a rifle and go stalking. 
So, so there, I, there has to be some kind of application process or permission granted in order for someone to go and hunt. No, there is no hunting full stop. Oh, okay. That, you know, you, like I say, with your public lands, once you've got your tag, etc., um, and it, you know, you can go on there and hunt. No, you you can't on these things. Yes, if they if they have, you know, for instance, they have deer in there and they have employed deer managers, then you can buy a day to go out with the deer manager, okay, as part of his job to control the deer numbers in a particular area. But it's not like you know public land, right? Okay, so then th- there's a uh... Is it a, is anybody able to go and let's say for me, I can't afford to buy a piece of hunting property. Um, and in the area that I hunt, yes, there is public lands, but there's so many people on there who hunt. I sometimes go and knock on doors and they give me permission to hunt. Is the tag system there where I can buy a, a deer tag or buy you know, some kind of license and then go knock on someone's door and say, Hey, do you mind if I uh, go shoot a deer on your property? What's, is that something that happens? Um, well, to start with, we don't have tags, licenses or limits. So, so you do, do not have to spend any money whatsoever technically to shoot a deer. Oh, wow. So yes, you can go and knock on a farmer's door and say, you know, does anybody control, manage your deer, etc.? And, you know, if, if there is no one and he's open to that idea, then, you know, absolutely. Exact, works exactly the same over here. Okay. Um, so, for instance, the farm, I, I've i been on the farm I, sh- I shoot over uh, since 1997. And um, because now I'm very good friends with that farmer and everything else, but to start with, I, I asked for pigeon shooting. Um rights on there to shoot the pigeons when they come in and eat all the crops and then it's progressed into the deer um so i don't obviously have any cost to my hunting whatsoever apart from putting you know diesel in my land rover or ammunition in my rifle gotcha okay so in let's see my neck so then so then you can go out and literally shoot as many deer as you want is that any time of year or are there seasons or, or where, okay, you can't shoot a deer from this date to this date, but you can from this date to this date? Uh, yes. Every single species apart from the muntjac has seasons. Um, the muntjac has guidelines. Um, but the seasons, for, let's read, if we talk of locally um, or, or England anyway, um, the season for fallow bucks, um, muntjac bucks, red stag, seeker stag, uh, runs from the 1st of August until the last day of April. Uh, the doe season and hind season for those and Chinese water deer and muntjac run from the 1st of November until the 31st of March. Uh, roebucks are different, whereas like your white tails, our fallow bucks, etc., grow antlers through the summer and then become hard antlered through the autumn months and into the winter. Uh, roebuck actually grow there's the reversal and grow through the winter and are hard antlered through the summer. Oh wow! So uh, they're the only deer species here that could technically have their antlers damaged by frost. Oh okay. 
So, um, so if you have fallow, let's say you have fallow and roe on your hunting area, you could shoot all year round because when your fallow season ends, the roebuck season starts. Okay. So, um, so yes, we've got big long seasons. No, say no limits, no tags. It's everything is landowner controlled. Okay. So if you're a landowner and you want a hundred deer on your land and you have two hundred. You can shoot 100 straight off, and then you shoot 50 every year because roughly 100 deer will produce 50 young, and you, know, you manage your deer like that. If you're a landowner who wants zero deer on your land, you can treat them like public enemy number one. Okay, and just get rid of them. Absolutely, yes. I mean, because we can sell venison, you see. Oh, we can okay. sell all of our game. To like a local market? Or? To, yep, to a game dealer. Who then either is big enough, for instance, who takes my deer from me? Uh, ben Rigby is a big game dealer and he has contracts for all the forestry commission and things like that. And he has a processing plant uh, and great big, you know, all, almost like an abattoir in its build. Um, and it is just there for dealing with game. So, you know, say all, of, all the deer I shoot that I don't want for my freezer, they go to him and I'm paid for them. Okay. So then do you keep any yourself to eat? I te- I put the muntjac in the freezer for me. Okay. Does um, does one taste better than the other? I think muntjac are the best venison in the world. Really? Um, yeah, it's it's super. It's like lamb without the fat and grease. And they're the smaller. Uh, they smaller. are yes. Okay. I got. Um, but I would keep back. You know, if I'm, if I was going to keep a fallow back, then I'd choose a yearling doe. Okay. Um, but you know, for instance, I, you know, the thought of eating a buck during the rut is so repulsive. I couldn't imagine it. The, the meat would be just so churned up with adrenaline and everything else that, you know, we, we'll send all that to the Germans and the French. They can eat it. <laughs> is that because they, uh, they, uh, like turn it into sausage or they just, they just acquire a taste for a, a more gamey animal. Yeah. I mean, when you're eating frog's legs and snails, you don't care what your venison tastes like. Do you? <laughs> Um, they seem to like them more. They they don't worry about it. A lot of our venison, because we produce so much, is actually exported. Oh, nice. So over there, I mean, in the in the United States here, we have a hunting industry where we have people who can become popular and put out television shows and become a quote unquote celebrities because they are hunters. Is there and, and there's you know, a a millions and millions of dollar industry that revolves around hunting products. Is there any type of industry over there from maybe an entertainment standpoint when it comes to hunting? Yes, it's mostly internet based. Um, I mean, if you, I mean, let's, let's try and get a size comparison here. Um, I think we fit into Texas three times. You know, that's how small the UK is. But the shooting industry is still worth $2 billion. Okay. So that's roughly what, uh, sort of $3 billion. So it is quite a large industry. And, of course, people from around the world flock here to go game shooting for the pheasant and partridge because we are, you would say we are the capital for the game shooting world. Okay. Um, so, but, um, yeah, you, you do get not, not to the, the celebrity status that you guys get. There are people who, you know, who produce a lot of online, you know, videos and programs, uh, who will be sponsored by gun manufacturers, clothing, et cetera, et cetera. 
and travel the world as well doing it but we don't we don't have the outdoor channel or sportsman channel etc to, to promote it on live tv okay so as far as you're concerned do you have any type of uh like for, for in the united states we put a huge value on the antlers um you know, we, we, we want them to be the biggest, baddest set of antlers as far as a whitetail is concerned. I mean, heck, even with elk or, or pronghorn, antelope or mule deer, just about any animal, the bigger the antler, the better, so to speak. There's that kind of um, vibe in, in, uh, in the hunting industry here. Is, is there any focus at all on age class over there or antler size? Yes. Um... In the sense that if you're a deer, I mean, basically, because we have no tags and limits, every recreational deer hunter is a deer manager in his own right. Okay. Um, whereas, say for someone, uh, I don't know about, say, Iowa or any of this. I know for Georgia, you have, I think, two buck tags and then eight doe tags. So would a hunter wish to shoot a coal buck? with his tags to try and promote better deer management for the herd or would he just want to shoot two good bucks the likelihood he's going to shoot the good bucks isn't he right whereas over here because we have no limits we can shoot at every single piece of rubbish you know poor head weak bodied whatever it is we don't burn a tag on it so our, our emphasis through the year really is to actually promote antler growth and herd management to producing, you know, you know, a 10-year-old fallow buck, for instance, is when he's right in his prime about then. Okay. So we're, we're, you know, we'll be leaving bucks to go on and make really good bucks. And then we'll probably, when he's hit his prime then and maybe starting to go downhill, that's when we would shoot him and take him out of the herd because he's then passed on his genetics. Right. Whereas we would look at what you call a spike horn, we would call a pricket over here saying fallow, if he has got very small antlers and weedy body, and we know he's not going to make a good buck at any point, so we'll shoot him at eighteen months old. Okay. So whereas over there, I know that some people criticise people for shooting small deer. Right. Um, whereas, but each estate, for instance, if it's a sporting estate, will have a certain number of deer they cull each year, and they all cull from the each age range and bracket and each sex side. So obviously the bigger bucks and stags, there will be a market for clients to come and shoot them. Gotcha. Gotcha. So is there, so I take it there's also a huge, over here we call it outfitting, uh, where a landowner will have people come to their property and pay to hunt basically. Is, is that a big portion of hunting over there yes um yes absolutely um where if you think of your tag system on public land and you you might for you know i don't know 500 dollars for a tag for the year to go to a certain zone or whatever over here it's probably equates to the same as someone buying a day's stalking with a with a guide and going out and shooting with him so even if you don't have land to shoot over here, you can still buy a day, two days, however many you want. It depends on your budget. 
um, anywhere around the country. Okay. There are there are you know hundreds of us of sporting estates that offer deer stalking. Great. Okay. So in the United States, for whitetails, um, there are certain areas of the United States, Iowa being one of them, maybe Illinois or Kansas, where if you want to go shoot a, a really big mature whitetail, you go to those places. Are there specific areas in England where if you want to go shoot a big buck, you got to try to get into this area? Yes. Um, for, for, for fallow deer, um, Hampshire and Oxfordshire are the places to, to go. Um, for roe deer, um, again, some of those places are, are the places. The southern counties of England are the, are the places to go. Uh, red deer very much into Norfolk and then back down into the West Country, um, because that's the forest animals. They're they're big bodied, big antlered. Uh, Scotland, Scottish red deer. A lot of them live out on the open hill, so all they have to eat is heather. So they aren't big bodied and they aren't big antlers. Um, so without a doubt, um, and if if you want big seeker stags, you'd then go again into the West Country into Dorset, um, and also you're looking at the the ground qualities and the minerals and etc that are in the ground to produce that right to convert into antler really and you know like i said iowa illinois kansas they have that that magic recipe in the soil that yeah. you know helps that um are also they, uh, they're agriculture aren't they yes yep. yes so again so the southern part of england would be more of an agricultural area Certainly for um, for crops, etc. Okay. They are it's because it's easier to grow, and you you know you get the better yields and everything else. The further north you go, the colder it gets, etc., etc. Um, but um, and and also they tend to be more um, uh, stock for again cattle and sheep and pigs, etc. Okay, so what are the you, you talked a little bit about the growing breeding seasons for some of these deer. When are their mating seasons, and is that does that coincide then with the hunting seasons as well? Yes, the uh, the first rut of the year will we'll go on season wise will be the roebuck that will start because he's because he's hard antler during the summer. His rut is sort of uh, late June going through until August. Okay, um, and if you think of of, of roe deer, they're very much like whitetails. Because they are, on, on an evolutionary standpoint, they are probably like a, a cousin to the whitetail, really. Okay. So um, his habits are very much uh, a solitary buck that's going to be looking for does and to pin her down in a particular area and hold her until she's ready to breathe and then go and find another doe, etc. So they're quite like a whitetail. All right. Um, then you have the red deer rut is in September. And the stags will sort of try and hold harems of, of hinds and follow them about and then, you know, fight over them and ch- challenge another stag for his harem. And that's how that goes about. Um, the seeker then come in October. Um, they stay similar to red. They're, um, they're quite a, hold harems and everything else. Very aggressive deer seeker. Um, a, fallow di- a fallow rut through uh, late October into November, um, bucks actually hold stands. So there will be traditional rutting stands where they have rutted for centuries 
and they will cut the bucks will come back to those stands and the does will mingle in and out and that's how their rut is muntjac um <laughs> muntjac can can breed all year round uh they're quite unique in that sense because um, most other deer species, a, ma- a buck or a stag, wouldn't be able to produce sperm when he has no antlers. Right. Whereas a muntjac buck can. Whether he is, um, he's cast his antler, he's growing in velvet, or he's hard antler, he can actually father offspring the whole year round. Because so- his testo- testosterone and everything else levels are up. Whereas once, uh, say, a fallow buck or a whitetail buck has cast his antlers, his will drop, and he will not be able to actually produce sperm to, to breed a die. Okay. So are then the does receptive the entire year as well, where they can, Absolutely. They can birth all year? Yep. Oh, yep. Wow. And what will happen as well with Munjack does is once she drops a fawn, she will probably clean herself and come straight back into season. Really? Yes. Yeah, so so while she's you know dealing with that one fawn, she'll also be carrying a fawn inside. They're a very difficult deer doe-wise to control because there's the likelihood if you shoot a wrong doe, you could have an orphan fawn at foot. Right. So you've got to pick yearlings or obviously heavily pregnant does. Right. That's crazy. So it's almost mm. like like a nuisance animal where I would <laughs> you know, if if they're not taken care of or managed properly, they could get out of control. Are are those the are those the deer over there that um, if there's going to be an animal that is out of control, it's the muntjac. Um, no, it, it'd be the herding deers because the fallow w- would be the the one I would say. But muntjac certainly, if you look at their spread, I mean they were they were um, brought over by the Duke of Bedford. Um, back in, like I say, the, you know, 1900 somewhere. So they have spread from, uh, there's been a few deliberate um, releases, but uh, I think during the war and there was also, and various things, gates were left open in his, his enclosures. And that is where our Muntjac's population stems from, that one county, where they're now widespread throughout the whole of southern England and going up into north. And there are even reports of them in Scotland. Wow. So that, yeah, the muntjac would, and as we say, because they can breed all year round, they're so rapid at reproducing. Right. Right. Okay. But they're a brilliant little deer. I'm so glad he brought them over. Nice. So then from, from hunting, uh, you know, from hunting these animals, what about the weapons? Um, do a majority of people use uh, firearms or is there any type of archery? Uh, you know, archery hunting over there. No, bow hunting was banned in 1965. Really? Yes. And that includes, um, and that includes uh, uh, crossbows as well. Everything. Okay. So, why was bow hunting banned? Ah, oh, here we go. Right. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is what I'm interested in right here. Um. If you think of 1965 and what was available for use, they weren't that uh, adequate at killing deer, really, were they? That you know, technology has moved on so far. Right. So it wasn't deemed an acceptable way. Okay. To 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 kill deer. Now I you know I admit that 
the you know the archery with your you know your your bows now and the broadhead the everything else the technology they are a lot more accurate in their usage and they say the what those broadheads when you actually see what they do when they go through it the damage is you know incredible right um but that i we just aren't a great lovers of bow hunting here either yes some people do travel to america or africa or wherever and go bow hunting but the average person here i think would be quite happy to see it continue to be banned and just let's just we'll have our rifles and be done with it okay and now is is some of that sediment because it's been banned for so long i mean i'm i wasn't i wasn't born until 1980 so that's 15 years of um uh an archery band. So I may have never, if I lived in England, may never have been exposed to it. Um, is it just something that back then everybody accepted and it's like, okay, well, we don't want hunting to be banned altogether. So we'll just, we'll take our rifles and, and then, you know, we can ban archery. Um, I don't know how it, how it all came about. Certainly the, um, as, as you say, that we haven't been exposed to it for so long right. that we don't miss it or have any involvement in it. Um, but I think people just saw wounding deer and okay. losing deer as unacceptable. Okay. So, and as I say, I do appreciate that the technology has moved along in that now to right. the point where the, you know they are very lethal. Um, but um, so yeah, I just as you say, I don't think we're exposed to it. So. I can never see a, a call for it to be legalized. Gotcha. Gotcha. Is, is there any type of movement over there or a group of people who are trying to maybe reinstate it for a push? Or is it just kind of like you said, you know, we're just going to stick with our guns and, and hunt with our, our rifles. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not aware of anyone in that okay. sense. Uh, I mean, if for instance, if you go onto a UK-based deer forum and start a topic about bow hunting, you'll have 90% of people say, no, thank you. You'll have 10% go, yes, I would be interested. And then it will all get out of hand and moderators will come on and just shut the thread down. <laughs> <laughs> you know, hey, you whenever what. someone, whenever in the Facebook groups, whenever anyone says about bow hunting, you just think, oh God, it's going to all kick off again. Right, right. And I tell you what, there is a lot of that same type of, not necessarily about what styles of hunting, but there's that same kind of trash talking that goes on, on some of these forums in the United States too, where, and it, for example, I, I just can remember going on there and asking a question uh, about archery equipment and everybody gave their opinions and then everybody started trash talking each other. And then the next thing you know, it, the topic wasn't even about what kind of uh, arrows I should buy. It, it was something <laughs> about, how, about you know, oh, I don't like you. You don't like me. And it, it got into just like a cat fight, basically. <laughs> yes, so, it sounds very similar. I mean, we get that here with like shot placement. Right. You have traditional people who only believe in shooting in the chest for the heart and lungs, etc., you will then have people who maybe professionally do it for a living and therefore a game, someone, if you're selling carcasses to a game dealer, he wants neck or headshots. Right. Cause he doesn't want the carcass damage. Right. Whereas obviously with a headshot becomes a very risky shot because you could blow a drawer off. Right. 
Yeah. Um, so so the the headshot is our sort of bow hunting, you know, cat fight over here. And from a from a shot placement, you know, ethics, you know, the the ethical shot kind of comes into play. Is that is that what hunters over there argue about the most? I mean, because um, we because I'll be honest, over here we still have we we have a little bit of that as well where. It's like, oh, you're a bow hunter. Well, I guess you don't want to recover your animal. You just wound them, and then gun hunters, you know, <laughs> and then bow hunters argue to gun hunters, you know, say, well, that's not sporting like, or and they they go back and forth. What are some of the big arguments amongst hunters over there? It, it will definitely be the shot placement, um, and and the risk. In, say head shooting. If you, if you are, let's say, what you call a tree stand, we call a high seat. Right. Um, if you're sat in a high seat and you have a lovely rest and let's say there's a deer 50 yards away from you looking away from you, there's nothing wrong with a headshot. If you can zero your rifle to shoot an inch group at 100 yards, you right. can shoot a five inch circle at you know, a deer's head. Right. But you know, if they swing their head round or do something and you blow that bottom jaw off, it's obviously not a killing shot and he's going to go for miles and miles and you'll never get it. So it's a very – I don't head shoot. I don't like it. Um, I, if I can, I'll neck shoot them because it puts them down on the ground instantly and it means you can then get on with your neck shot. I mean, do you, if you saw the photo the other day of those three fallow does, yep. that was 20 seconds. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. So, you know, the neck shot means they're on the ground. The rest of the herd is – we've also – we're allowed to use sound moderators on our rifles here. So a silencer. So, yeah, well, yes. Okay. So they haven't heard the big crack of a rifle, but they've heard something. But because the animal dropped straight away and hasn't run in panic, they're not sure what's going on. So from a herd management, it means you can then have a second, third, and I've even had a fourth shot. Nice. So um, there's times where you can really pack them, pack them in the truck. Oh, yeah. I mean, we shot – I had a friend up one weekend – and another friend who lives locally, and we shot 17 on the weekend. That's a lot of meat. <laughs> yes. Well, especially when you're getting paid at the moment, we're getting $3 a pound. Oh, wow. Okay. So so you shot those 17 deer, and then you took them to the game dealer, and he paid yep. you $3 a pound for the entire animal, or was that boned out That's meat? No, no, no. That's um, head, legs off, guts, and um, organs and out. So in the skin, in the jacket. Okay. So do you do you rely on that for some of your your yearly income, um, or is it just extra for you? It's it's extra. It pays for yeah. You know, if you need a new coat or well, I mean, <laughs> yes, it does. I'm self-employed. Right. So if I, for instance, say I'm going to go deer stalking this morning and I'm going to be late to work, if I get a beast, it pays for those t hours off. Right. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I, I, you know, my Land Rover does tend to drink diesel, so uh, it pays for that as well. Okay. Well, let's see here. So as far as what you do um, for a living, you know, and it's, would you you have the ability to go hunt property would would anybody any random person have the opportunity to to find land and become uh, a hunter 
or is it just for a certain group of people, maybe somebody who makes a little bit more money, or is it like, I'm a, in the United States, I'm considered middle class and um, don't make a lot of money, but I, I have way more um, availability to land than let's say what it sounds like for someone over there. Is hunting for everybody over there or is just maybe a certain group of people or maybe from what I understand in some of the European countries, including England, that it might be now for for the wealthy? No, it is for absolutely anybody. Um, to own a, a rifle or shotgun over here, you have to have a firearms or a shotgun certificate. Okay. So you apply to the police. Um, you state your circumstances of the reason you um, intend to use them, etc. Um, you have to have a couple of referees that have known you for two years that can vouch for you um, that you're a good, sound-minded person. They will go to your doctor and check that there's no um, history of mental illness, and etc. Um, if you are a member of a clay, you know, shooting club or a rifle club. Um, if you are a syndicate member for a pheasant shoot or blah, 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 as long as you show good reason, you will be granted a firearms or a shotgun certificate. Is that a, a long and difficult process or is it fairly, if I wanted to go, let's say I live there and I said, Hey, this weekend I want to go hunting. How long does that process take? Uh, it depends on each force, each you know county and each police force. Um, Essex, for instance, mine, they're ridiculously slow um, and got a backlog at the moment I do know of. Um, but once you let's say you you're, let's say it takes six weeks for your initial application, they're then good for five years. So when your five year renewal comes up, he, I've just had mine. He just comes round, <laughs> checks your gun cabinet to say that the guns on your certificates are the guns you own. Make sure your gun cabinet is bolted to the wall, and you know he sees the keys as not left out lying around for the kids to pick up. Right. And that's it. You know, I know that obviously you don't have the laws like that, but right. and it sounds so much more complicated. It really right. isn't. As long as you are a good person, you will be able to do whatever you like. And then as far as being able to hunt, as again, if, it's like we said before, if you want to knock on a farmer's door and ask permission, if you want, it depends what you want to do as well. I mean, you know, there's a budget for everyone. Right. So if you want to shoot 100 bird day pheasants, then you know, you'll pay $200 and go and buy a day's pheasant shooting if you haven't got land to shoot on yourself. And again, if deer store, I mean, big landowners employ people to control deer. And part of their job will be also selling days out deer stalking. So instead of them shooting the deer themselves, you'll then have clients come in and, you know, take them out to do it. So around Scotland, Wales, you know, England, everywhere, there is there are sporting estates to go out deer stalking on. Okay. So and that it, may it's available. I was say that may range from, you know, $100 to, you know, three, four, five thousand dollars $5,000. Gotcha. Just depends on, on the estate and you know, a whole bunch of other variables like uh, quality of animal that you're looking for. Absolutely. I mean, you know, let's take Thetford Forest, for instance. Now, that is a public um, area that anyone can walk on. Okay. They employ, I think it's six deer managers, 
And each deer manager is expected to shoot 300 deer a year. So obviously he also takes out clients as part of that 300. So it's not just him shooting them all. Right. He'll take out, you know, paying guests. So, so a landowner can recoup money for pay, having to pay a deer manager. They can recoup money by selling days deer stalking. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, and, and going back to the, the gun, you know, that's a whole different debate here in the United States. There would be, there's going to be people on, you know, if, if we get into this whole gun debate, which I don't want to do because that's a whole nother can of worms, the <laughs> <laughs> people would lose their mind here in the United States if they had to go through what you have to go through in order just to, you know, get a license to own a gun to, to hunt animals. People would, people would like their brain would collapse because they wouldn't even know how to process it. They'd be so angry. I know it, it makes me laugh when, I mean, cause the, the, as an English person I, on Facebook groups, I'm a member of a, a Georgia deer hunting group. Yeah. And the first time I posted in there and said, you know, do you mind an Englishman posting in here? The question is like, we didn't know you had guns over there. <laughs> and you just scratch your head and think, well, who told you that crap? Right. Cause, cause you're fed so much propaganda from, God knows where sources, I don't know. I mean, some of it is even your own hunting and shooting organizations to sort of get money out of you to fight gun laws that, you know, it's really bad over here. Whereas I think we've got brilliant gun laws. Right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you yourself, uh, of course, you don't, uh, you, you hunt turkey though, don't you, with a shotgun? Yep, I do. So you have, do you have a gun cabinet where you lock your guns away? Uh, no, I don't. Oh, you don't? <laughs> I have a closet where my shotgun sits on the top shelf. <laughs> okay. I was but a lot of Americans uh, do have, you know, gun cabinets, don't they, where they are safe, yes. where they lock the... I yep. mean, you're, oh, that's all we do. That is all the stipulation is. And, and you have a piece of paper that says, you know, you can buy this or right. that. Right. So, it, it, say, yes, there's a process you have to go through, but it really isn't that bad. So now, now kind of going back to hunting and I want to, I want to focus now on your individual hunting style. How do you, and I'm, I'm sure there's a different hunting style for every animal that you try to try to shoot. Are you running any type of game cameras or trail cameras to let you know what deer are on the properties that you hunt? And, and then maybe talk a little bit about you know, what kind of strategies you're using for these specific deer? Uh, yes, I've got three trail cameras um, and uh, they get moved around the place. Mostly at the moment, I tend to be looking for muntjac bucks. Um, the, the fallow can, can range so much that, um, and, and we've, uh, we've got two and a half thousand acres to play with. So they could be on our land one minute and then three farms over two four miles away on another minute. Okay. Um, so yeah, you know, we do have resident fallow herds, but to say they can, you know, to, during the rut especially to see a buck on one camera and then see him a mile away on another camera is is not uncommon. Um, but for the muntjac, I, I mean, I, I yeah, I have cameras out everywhere searching for good bucks. Um, so, so and. Then- so then when it comes to strategy, I mean, do you say, okay, I've passed this particular buck four years now. 
he he's going to be on my hit list. Uh, I know I want to shoot this particular buck next year. Do you have that? I mean, here here in the United States, I can look at an animal, a, a buck, and I can say, oh, based on his characteristics, you know, of his antlers or his body size, I I follow this particular deer throughout his life cycle. Then when he hits a certain age, I'm going to target him. Do you do you do anything like that? Absolutely, yes. Okay. Um, uh, with, with I mean, muntjac, um, they're quite a territorial deer. So once you find out where he roughly is, you know, you can sort of pinpoint him. And then it's just a matter of time of him making a mistake and coming out in daylight. Um, so, so, you know, very much so. The other thing that we've got here is we're quite a flat ground and we have a lot of public right of way, which we mean footpaths. So we, most of our shooting is done from tree stands. Gotcha. Um, because, you know, obviously that rifle, you know, bullet has got to have a, a backstop to it. Got it. So you don't, you don't necessarily hunt from the ground because if you miss that, who knows where that bullet goes? Yep. Yep. I mean, obviously, you know, that's, that's our ground. There are certain places, yes, we can shoot from the ground without a doubt, but the, the majority of it for, for public safety, um, it, it is uh, done from, from uh, an ele- elevated position. Um, but, um, I mean, yeah, we, as far as strategy goes, yeah, I mean, just it, it really is just the same as you guys. Okay. Um, just sure. learning patterns and seeing things. I mean, with, say, fallow does, when the doe season is in, um, obviously the only way to control numbers is shoot does. Shooting bucks is an irrelevance when it comes to herd management. Right. So, um, so yeah, if, if a doe group comes out, then you're if you can select older beasts, um, then we will do so. Um, if you can pick out anything with an obvious injury or whatever else, we'll shoot them as well. Deer management here is very much for um, herd quality and improvement. Yeah, yeah. So there's less of a, a value on the, the antlers than there is on the herd. Yes. Uh, for, for us, for instance, because we're a private farm, so to speak, and we don't have clients to get on big bugs, um, we always look to leave big bucks until they are right at the, I mean, on this piece of ground, actual trophy quality bucks. I've only ever shot one in 18 years Okay. because say I shoot the rubbish. So if something comes through with poor standard antlers, then he's always going to be like that. So that's it. Bang. The other thing as well is that we have had on other neighboring farms, a couple of idiots who have gone and shot every single big buck. So we're trying to rebuild the population. Okay. That's one downfall of the being able to sell venison. They'll shoot whatever. instead. Well, also the big bucks, big body, big weight, big money. Right, right, okay. So they they were they were not interested in the sort of hunting side of it, so to speak. That you know that wasn't why they were out to enjoy being out. They were out to make money. Understood. So. Do you have a problem over there with trespassing or hunting on ground that is not yours? I have never come across it, but it certainly does happen. Yes. Okay. Um, the people would, some people wouldn't think, let's say there's a fence line between the two farms and there's a deer 10 yards on the other fence line. They would probably, some, some people would shoot that and just drag it over. But on the whole, we're, on the whole, we're, they're quite a 
the, the deer hunters of the UK are a very well-spoken, well-mannered, considerate lot. Okay. Well, I mean, I have, I, I could continue this conversation for hours and hours and hours, but um, I have just kind of a very vague question for you. And that is, why do you hunt? Um, well, I guess to, to start with is that I come from a country family. Okay. So therefore, for generations going back, we have all been farmers, gamekeepers, gardeners, etc., which is obviously a land-based occupation. Yeah. So that brings you into close contact with wildlife. Um, so you come from the countryside, you learn about the countryside, and you learn about how to manage it. So it's in our blood. It's in my blood. Um, I'm also a wildlife photographer. Oh, okay. So my love is, I, you know, to be out with either the rifle or the camera, it doesn't matter to a point. It's being out and observing deer, foxes, you know, whatever. If I'm chasing dragonflies or butterflies or photographing orchids, it, I'm a country boy. It's where I, I don't do very well in the city. Right. I've only been to London about four times in my whole life. Awful, horrible experience. <laughs> That's kind of what I feel like when my wife's like, hey, let's go to Chicago for the weekend. I was like, eh, I like gravel roads. Yes. Yes, if I don't see uh, grass for an hour or so, I start to panic. Right, right. Well, Matt, I tell you what. Um, I, I appreciate you taking time out of your day to come on this show. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. You're more than welcome, Dan. It's been a pleasure. I tell you what, that was an eye-opener for me. Uh, it's always awesome to talk with people from different environments, how they hunt, what they hunt, and uh, you know the progression of hunting in their particular country. So uh, just, something, just something unique and different, and I, I really hope you guys found interest in that. Uh, I, I sure did. But a uh, huge shout-out to Matt for coming on the show, taking time out of his day to uh, record the podcast. And uh, as always, thank you, the listener, for tuning in, uh, taking an hour or so of your day to uh, listen to me ask random questions to people all over the U.S. and other countries now. So uh, thank you for that. Huge shout-out to the podcast partner, the po I can't even talk. The podcast partners, Deer Lab and Exodus Trail Cameras. Be sure to check out those two companies, guys. And uh, other than that, check me out on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and that should just about do it. I got one extra podcast coming this Friday. Hopefully, you guys uh, can tune into it. And uh, then that's it for 2016. I just want to say thank you guys. I'm going to say this again on the next podcast, but I just want to say thank you to all the listeners for making this podcast what it is today. Without you, this podcast means nothing. So huge shout out to that. And uh, be looking forward to some uh, free gear coming up for 2017 as well. So uh, we're, I'm really looking to uh, handing out some more gear, getting some, uh, I know lately I've been doing a lot of um, hunter profile and BS sessions. A lot of these companies are just too busy right now preparing for trade shows to uh, take time to uh, do these interviews. But once that, once this trade show season starts winding down, 
and these guys can get back on the show. I'm going to start piling out uh, some of these, you know, getting some more of these companies on and start uh, doing what I do again, uh, you know, talking with the companies themselves. Also, I want to hear from you, the listener. Um, I want some product reviews coming on. Typically, what I like to see is you review three products. They don't all have to be good. You know, I would actually prefer some, uh, some criticism on s- some products as well. Uh, and that's what makes it completely unbiased. I know everybody always wants to sing praises, but, uh, not a lot of people like to talk about the negative effects that they've seen in products, which when it comes to a negative about a product, I feel that I want to hear that more than the positives on uh, on some cases because that may help me make a, a decision on that product or another product. So um, if you guys have some products that you've used this hunting season that you were really happy with or maybe even – uh, on the other hand, not happy with, I would love for you guys to come on the show and uh, review those products with me. All you have to do is hit me up on Facebook or you can send an email to ninefingerchronicles at gmail.com and let me know you have some products to review. <sighs> so, there's that. Now, there's still a little bit of hunting season left, guys, and uh, I tell you what, if you have the opportunity to get into a tree, do it, but if you do, wear your damn safety harness. Have a good week.